0: The message is entitled, The Gifts of Tongues, Interpretation, and Prophecy. In our series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we have seen the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that at times it is accompanied with gifts of the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at the gifts of revelation, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and discerning of spirits, plural. And in our last study, we studied the gifts of power, the gifts of faith, miracles, and healings, plural. Now we want to look at the next three gifts of the Holy Spirit, which fall under the category of the gifts of inspiration or utterance. Those two labels are given to them. They are found in various places, particularly in 1 Corinthians uh, 12.10. There, it says to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another discerning uh, different kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. So, these are the three gifts that are mentioned in that verse, along with others, tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. Again, some important reminders about the gifts that we've already shared, but for you who are stepping in without the previous two teachings. First, these are all supernatural gifts severally given by God and sovereignly operated by the Holy Spirit of God. He gives them. He Operates them. Second, the person is the mere vessel, the instrument, the vehicle, if you will. Thirdly, the entire body of the church can obtain gifts once you are born again. That's the qualification. And fourthly, they are operative till the Lord's return, and we'll see that again tonight. And fifthly, they are not human abilities or talents. So you may have some talents, you may have some abilities that are great, but those are not supernatural. Either they are natural to you from the human perspective or you've learned them, okay? These are supernatural gifts that God endows us with. And sixth and last, that they should always be operated and manifest according to the word of God, decent and in order. We have an orderly God, not a God of confusion. We'll also see that. My prayer is that we might understand what the scriptures say about them, how a person can judge these gifts, whether they are true and according to scripture, and how it is that each uh, benefits in the body of the church from the various gifts. So we want to take these three gifts, but we want to do it in reverse order and begin with the gift of tongues, move to interpretation, we'll finish with prophecy so it can fall in line and help us understand them. So, first, the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12.10, I've read it there. That's where you find, that's one of the verses. Now, let me give you a definition of tongues. It is as follows. A supernatural utterance proclaimed by man by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in an unknown language. The Spirit making intercession according to the will of God, while at the same time your understanding is unfruitful. Listen to First Corinthians fourteen two. He says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. In that second verse... When you speak in tongues, if you have your gift of tongues, you don't even understand yourself. No one else understands you. Okay? Very clear basic principle, and we'll cover it again. Look at verse 14 of chapter 14. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So Paul uses synonymous with the gift of tongues, his prayer language. They're both the same thing. My gift of tongues or prayer language. I can speak. He could speak in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, or in tongues. So he could do it in four languages. Three of them were earthly languages. The fourth one is heavenly, not earthly. Now, he or she who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God very clearly here in verse 2. He or she is not understood by anyone. It is not an earthly language. Again, verse 2 is very clear on that. And the reason I make an emphasis and I'm being over obvious tonight is because many in Pentecostal circles or other will tell you that you can speak in a language like French or German that you never spoke before. That would be a miracle like in Acts 2, dialectus. The definition of tongues is right here. You don't understand, nor anybody understands you. Unless it's interpreted. Put that on hold till we get there. Okay? She or he, however, is in the spirit speaking mysteries, mysterion. Okay? They don't understand. He or she are said to be praying in tongues. Their spirit prays, but their understanding is unfruitful. Verse 14, Paul says that. It is God speaking through you by his Holy Spirit. Now, the usual teaching on tongues in Pentecostal circles, and by the way, we are Pentecostal. That means we believe in the gifts, but decent and in order, okay? So We're not bagging on Pentecostals who believe in the gifts. We believe in them, but we don't believe they're to be exercised in a circuitized atmosphere that has no biblical basis. They declare that you must speak in tongues as the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the majority of Pentecostal circles, assembly of God, four square, so on and so forth. Okay? That you have to speak in tongues. They even say that everybody can speak in tongues. Well, we're gonna shoot that right down the drain. As Paul says, Do I have the gift of healing? No. Do I have the gift of this? No. Do I have the gift of tongues? You don't can't say yes. It's still a rhetorical question. No. So well, how can you teach that? Some extreme groups even teach that. Tongues is the evidence of your salvation. That's extreme. Scripture does not support either of these doctrinal statements by the fact that both prophecy and tongue are manifested at times at the same time through the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit fell upon or the promise of the Father was given to them, six, seven, eight of those phrases that we've looked in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You have tongues and prophecy often together. So which one is going to be the evidence then? You can't teach one over the other. It's impossible. Paul declared the fact that not all have the same gifts. This includes the gift of tongues. Look at verse 29 of chapter 12 and 30. Are all apostles? What's the answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Yes. So much for that teaching. Do all interpret? No. It's all no. Paul also closes his teaching on the gifts, telling the Corinthians not to forbid to speak with tongues. Look at chapter 14, verse 39. He says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Simple. Simple. So, tongues is still operative. It's still a legitimate gift. Simple. The emphasis within Pentecostal circles is on experience, regardless of whether there is a scripture support for it or not. My feelings and emotions mean nothing and are never the criteria for doctrine. Just because you experience something and it's real to you, that's subjective. That's not based on objective truth of doctrine from the scriptures. The word of God is the only standard for our life. Even as Peter declared to those who were accusing them of being drunk in the day of Pentecost. This is that which was spoken to the prophet Joel. In the last days, my spirit pour out my spirit upon all flesh, so on and so forth. He gave a verse in its context for the experience. For it to be doctrinal and prophetical. So if you cannot put your finger on the scripture in context, and as doctrine, then your experience means nothing. I don't care how edified you were. You cannot teach it as scriptural doctrine. Example, the doctrine of casting out demons is a good example. I don't care what you saw. I don't care how much he threw up and it was green and purple and pink. And I don't care how many times he rolled on the floor. That's just flesh. Christians cannot be demon possessed. Simple. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. 1 John 4 4. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same vessel. Are we agreed here? Now, personal experience and gifts often are used. To intimidate, impress, or tower over people, or to appear spiritual to other people. When in fact, the gifts are God's benevolent gifts for the benefit of the church, and the only thing they are responsible for is that they operate them in accord with the scriptures for the edification of the body of Christ. Often they are operate in a carnal way to bring attention to you. I've stated it before, listen again. Spiritual gifts are no evidence that you are spiritual. They're just gifts. The Corinthians had all the gifts, and Paul calls them carnal, 100% beef. Gifts are no evidence that you're spiritual. God just gives to you for the benefit and edification of the body, not because you're spiritual. Simple. Too often, these three gifts, tongues, interpretation, and prophecy, are operated in such a way that they bring confusion, disorder, and give an opportunity for non-believers to conclude that Christians are crazy, mad. You ever been in one of those circles as a non-believer? I saw them before I was a Christian. I go, these people are crazy. Now, usually it is the same people every time operating the same gifts in the church. Before, when we were first born again, all of us as young people in seventy-three on, we went to an assembly of God and we went to Sunday school because they have worship and they have Sunday school difference, and um. Um. It would always be the same people standing up. The same man stand up about the same time speaking in tongues. And the same woman would stand up, give an interpretation, which really wasn't an interpretation. And they would be interrupting the pastor. God's not the author of confusion. And it's usually about the same time. If God is anointing me to speak to you, to teach you the word of God, do you think our God is going to interrupt me to speak through you to the whole body? We're going to see the scripture says That God's not the author of confusion. Paul is going to give order by one, by two, by three. Not at the same time. Simple. Now. People love to have attention to themselves. The purpose of tongues is given to us. We've already seen in verse 2 of 14. A person speaks to God. Also, a person edifies Themselves, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 14 here, verse 4 says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. We'll get into that distinction. A person prays to God. We saw that in verse 14, okay? But he doesn't understand what he's praying. Praying in the Holy Spirit is a command, an imperative command to everybody in Jude 20, we're going to get into that as we go along. How do we fulfill that? The person gives thanks to God in tongues. 1 Corinthians fourteen sixteen, he says, Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies a place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? So you're praying to God, you don't understand, you're giving thanks. This is what Paul says. This is an insult to many people, intellectually. They feel like fools. Who cares? The person cannot curse Jesus Christ. How often have I heard that in tongues? And they say, Well, my grandmother told me about a lady who she knew and she told me. And it's always this, you know, third, fourth resource stuff, okay? Uh, the Bible is very clear. Paul dismisses this, it's wrong and unbiblical. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Very, very clear. Okay? There are those who identify the weakness of man in prayer, not knowing what he should pray for, the way he ought with tongues. The Holy Spirit then intercedes with groanings which cannot be uttered according to the will of God. And they point to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 to 27. You're familiar with the text and you've heard that. I used to teach that also years ago. But the further I examine the text in view of the command of Jude for all Christians to pray in the spirit. I no longer believe it refers to the gift of tongues, but rather for those who do Not have the gift of tongues. In other words, in Jude verse 20, he gives a general command to every Christian. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Straight command. The only way Jude's command regarding every believer to pray in the Holy Spirit is possible. Is first of all, for those who do have their prayer language to pray in the Holy Spirit. Because he says it's in the Spirit. But secondly, the text in Romans eight twenty six and 27 would be the way it would be fulfilled to those who didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit making a according to the utterance with groanings that cannot be uttered. Okay? Otherwise, how are you going to fulfill the general imperative command to every Christian? To pray in the spirit. If not everybody has the gift of tongues. So those who have the gift of tongues. They fulfill it in their prayer language. And those who do not. By depending on the Holy Spirit. With groanings we cannot be utterance. According to Romans. This is the only way I can explain. Logically. Reasonably. And biblically. The imperative command of Jude. Verse 20. If you have a better one. Let me know. There's no other way I can explain it. Now, the correction and instruction about tongues is given to us in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, and 19. First, tongues is not for teaching. Fourteen, five, 5, and 6 says the following, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more, that you prophesy, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you and speak to you with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? So here he distinguishes tongue from teaching. So tongues is not for teaching, right? Verse 19, he says, Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding, in other words, in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, earthly language, that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in tongues. So Paul distinguishes and makes very clear that tongues is not for teaching. Okay? And that's a doctrine that's taught. It's wrong. At Pentecost, they heard them speak in their own dialect as the wonderful works of God in Acts 2, 1 through 7, and verse 11. And all the different uh, dialects are given there. They're listed. The miracle was in speaking, not in hearing, as some say. It's in the speaking. They heard them speak in their own dialects. The repentance came by the preaching of Peter in Hebrew. Not in tongues. Not what they heard in their dialect, but by the preaching. Very important. Tongues are illustrated by musical instruments that cannot be understood and therefore of no profit unless they are understood. Look at First Corinthians 14, 9 through 11. He says here in 9. So likewise you, unless you utter by tongues words easy to understand, how will it be Known what is spoken, for you will be speaking into the air. Therefore, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, conclusion if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be as a foreigner, a barbar, a barbarian. To him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner or barbarian to me. Why? Because you won't understand each other. Okay? And so, if someone just grabs a guitar, starts banging it, people go, What the heck is that? But if they get a trombone or a saxophone and they play, Oh, it's soothing, it's understood. Well, the same with tongues or human languages, right? There's a distinction. Tongues are manifested under full control always. Look at First Corinthians 14, 15, first. He says here, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. That's control. In other words, he can turn it on, turn it off, okay? He can speak in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, or he can speak or sing in tongues. It's under his control. Go down to verse 32. And the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, you cannot say, I couldn't help myself. I just, my tongue started tonguing out and I just got out of control. No, liar. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. You can turn it on. You can turn it off. That is the only gift that you have control of if you have the gift of tongues. You can speak soft. You can speak loud. You can speak or you can sing, all right? It's subject to the prophet. A person can pray in tongues, in the spirit, or with their understanding also. If you know Spanish, you can do it in Spanish. If you know English, you can do it in English. Or if you have tongues, you do it in tongues. Three languages, two earthly ones, one heavenly, right? All right? All right? The principle is that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophet verse 32. Carnal Christians always blame the Holy Spirit for their nonsense. Don't blame the Holy Spirit for your carnality. Tongues have their place and purpose but not for the public use for no one will understand and be able to give thanks to God and others are not edified. 1 Corinthians 14:16 through 17. Listen carefully. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen or at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks, well, but the other is not yet edified. Simple. If I got up here and spoke in tongues with you, it, what would have been of you? Nothing. If I started speaking Spanish, some of you may understand me. But those of you are saying, what the heck is this problem? Right? Now, we have what we call afterglows. A time when we wait upon God and we worship him. On Thursday, we kind of do that waiting. we pray for you. And we're open for God to speak to us through a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. We lay hands on you. We pray for you. And if God will speak to somebody, we would judge it, make sure it's biblical. The right direction as we're going to see and then we would make a judgment if that's God or not. We would instruct the person, correct them, or affirm that it is of God, and we would receive the prophecy or whatever it is. But it'd have to be biblical. Now, Paul places himself as the example of a mature Christian, knowing when and where and how to operate the gifts. Look at chapter 14 there, verse 18 through 20. He says here, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with an understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in tongues. Brethren, do not be children understanding. However, in malice be base, but in understanding be mature. He being mature in Christ, though able to speak in tongues more than all of them, he says there in verse 18 and 19, would rather And chooses to speak in a language understood in order to teach others rather than 10,000 words in tongues. Right? Simple. Notice Paul does not put tongues on the same level as teaching again. In fact, it is in contrast to teaching. And then in verse 20, he exhorts the Corinthians to likewise act as mature Christians. In their understanding of tongues and not as children. The only thing he desires is that they be children in their understanding concerning evil, malice. That's good. Now, now we count to chapter 14, verse 21, to the seeming contradiction regarding tongues. And uh, for years, I couldn't understand it. And I've studied it, and there came a time when it became clear to me. And I'm going to try to communicate this. I shared it with Pastor Chuck years before he died, and he says, well, that's as good an explanation to me as any other. So here we go. In chapter 14, verse 21, there seems to be a contradiction with what he has said about tongues prior to this, okay, from verse 20 backwards. Verse 21, he says, In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to the people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. Isaiah was being mocked by the unbelieving Jews regarding God's instruction, by the fact that he was being so basic and regarding the Assyrian judgment to come, who would speak to the people with stammering lips and another tongue in view of their refusal to hear the prophets. He's quoting Isaiah 28.11. This is the context. The law refers to the Pentateuch, first five books, which prophesied of the future judgment of God would bring on the Jews through foreigners whose language they would not understand. You find that prophecy in Deuteronomy 28.49. Way back there, God says, I'm going to bring people with a tongue you're not going to understand. They're going to pronounce judgment upon you because you haven't believed my prophecies. Prophecy often has short-term, long-term. We've seen that. The phrase law can also be used for the scriptures in general, apart from the Pentateuch at times, but not in this case. Now, notice the event is recorded for us as Rabshakeh of the Assyrians spoke to the men on the wall. To not let Hezekiah deceive them to trust in the Lord. And you find this in 2nd King 18 and also Isaiah 36. Okay. The Apostle Paul gives the interpretation and application for tongues in view of Isaiah's prophecy in verse 22 and 23. Notice in 22 and 23. Therefore, tongues are for a sign. Underline that. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church come together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Notice Paul declares that the Assyrian tongue was a sign in verse 22 of judgment to the unbelieving Jews. So tongues are a sign to the unbeliever in the church and prophecy a sign to the believer. Mark it well in verse 22. It seems to be a contradiction, but Paul is no longer talking about the gift of tongues in that manner. He's talking about when it's manifested in the church. When an unbeliever and a believer is present. This verse, Paul is merely distinguishing the two individuals, the unbeliever and the believer. Paul has up to this point, verse 20, been talking about the believer and tongues. Now he switches to the unbeliever and tongues in verse 22. To the believer, tongues edifies the person speaking and is beneficial only if it's interpreted. Agreed? Okay. Paul now declared the particular nature of the sign of tongues and prophecy to the unbeliever as well as the uninformed. Who's the uninformed? A Christian who is ignorant about the gifts, verse twenty three and twenty four. Okay? The unbeliever is one who's not a Christian. The uninformed is a Christian who doesn't know about the gifts. He's ignorant. If the church, notice in 23, is gathered together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed Christians who don't believe or are instructed in the gifts, or unbelievers, a non believer, a non Christian. Will they both not say that you are out of your gourd, man? Yes! The Christian who does not believe or is not instructed and hears you speak in tongues in a church setting, he'll say, let's get out of here. They're crazy. And the unbeliever will do the same, the same response. Because why? They cannot understand. But look at 24. But if all prophesy the act of speaking forth God's word in a human language and an unbeliever or an uninformed Christian comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Look at 24. If you prophesy and an unbeliever and an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And does the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So the secrets of his heart are revealed, evident by three things in verse twenty five. Notice first, falling down on his face, the beginning of twenty five. Second, worshiping God, the rest of twenty five. Thirdly, reporting that God is truly among them, the end of twenty five. Why? Because they can understand. If I prophesy, and part of prophesying is preaching. In English, and a non-believer comes in, he's convicted by the Spirit of God. If a believer is in sin, he's convicted. Because they both understand, right? But if I spoke in tongues, they both think I'm crazy, they both walk out of here. Now, this is the only way... I can clear up the seeming contradiction existing between verse 22 and 23 using the context of Isaiah and what Paul has said about tongues. It's the only way I can explain it. Otherwise, we have to accept there's a contradiction, and I refuse to accept that. Now, the J.B. Phillips translation, and it's not really a translation. It's, It's loose. It's not a... A translation. What James J.B. Phillips does is he reverses the words in verse 22 to line up with what he said before from verse 20 backwards. I can't allow that. Because if I allow that to J.B. Phillips, I have to allow the Mormons and J.W.s and everybody else to switch anything they want. You cannot do that. So I would much rather wrestle with the text and do good expositional exegesis, and try to understand it with its context, okay? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm trying to do the best I can, but that's the only way to understand it, and it's reasonable within the context, and it makes perfect sense to me, all right? And that's the only way I can clear it up. So this is the gift of tongues, okay? Next comes the gift of interpretation in chapter 12, verse 10. It's mentioned there. We've read it. The definition of the gift of interpretation is as follows. Interpretation of utterance by man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, through the individual. Not a translation, but an interpretation giving the meaning and significance and not a word for word translation. If you know two languages, you know exactly what is meant here. I know Spanish, I know English. When I try to translate Spanish to English, particularly jokes, it doesn't work. You have to settle for a, a translation that will communicate the sense and the communication. If you translate it word for word literally, it will be wooden and it won't communicate. And that's the difficulty of translations. Okay? The gift is not the mind of the individual, but of God, when the interpretation comes. The gift is not an opinion, a guess. Of what he thinks has been said. The interpretation of tongues in Pentecostal circles is interesting. Many say that God gives messages in tongues to be interpreted, but there is no such evidence in the Scriptures for such teaching. And tongues goes up to God. So first of all, there's no gift of messages in tongues. And the implication would be that God is speaking to the people. We've already established when you speak with tongues and in tongues, who are you speaking to? God. Which direction is that? Upwards. When you speak to man, you're speaking where? That way. Right? Simple. Why would God give a message in tongues to be interpreted when he can simply give us a known language by a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, or mere prophecy? It would be nonsense. But God does allow a person to speak in tongue to interpret it that you may know that God is present. We'll see this. Tongues, if you remember, is speaking to God, not to man. He speaks mysteries, 1 Corinthians 4.2. So even you, when you speak in tongues, you don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand. The individual's understanding isn't fruitful. Verse 14 of chapter 14. Many confuse prophecy and the gift of interpretation. Some will stand up and utter out in tongues. Okay? Someone stands up here, speaks out in tongues. Another stands up and directs himself to the congregation rather than to God. Everybody thinks and concludes that What followed the tongue was a true interpretation, but it was not. It was most likely prophecy, if it was legitimate prophecy. Because tongue is up to God. And if it was a true interpretation, it would again be addressed up to God, not to the congregation. Are we clear on that? So the direction tells you whether it's legitimate and true and genuine or not. Okay? The direction of tongues is very important at the giving of thanks. One of the ways that Paul says it, as we saw in verse 16 and 14. Tongues is praying up to God. We saw that in verse 14 through 15. The true gift of interpretation must be, by definition, according to the scriptures, direct itself back up to God, not to man. That is prophecy, and it comes with a human language, not An unknown tongue. Clear. Simple. Now, the instructions on interpretation of tongues is also given to us. Now that we have that, now we can understand the instructions and why he does it. When the gifts of interpretation is exercised, it edifies the church by virtue that it's going to be understood. That's the whole thing, interpretation. Look at verse uh, 12 of um, uh, verse 5 of first uh, corinthians fourteen he says here uh, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but more but even more that you prophesy for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification okay so the exhortations that once Zeal for spiritual gifts should be for the edification of the church. This is confirmed in verse 12 of the same chapter. The individual who speaks in tongues is to pray that he may interpret for the edification of the body. This you have in verse 13 of 14. He says, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So in other words, you're here and we're in an afterglow. And we're waiting on the Lord. And if you spoke in tongues and nobody gives an interpretation, then the responsibility falls back on you. For you to pray to God. If it's God that he give you the interpretation. All right? Because God, not the other confusion, right? The apostle gives the true case scenario of the Corinthian church, which was confusion and no order at all. Look at verse 26 of 14. He says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So they were, everybody was getting up. Somebody would just tongue out over here and somebody would prophesy over here. Someone would get up and give a little psalm and then surely temple would tap dance over there in the corner and He says, you guys are crazy. That's not of God, that's carnal. All things to be done for edification, he says. The order of tongues and interpretation of tongues in the church gathering then is given instruction in verse 27 and 28. Now, in 27 in 28, he says, if someone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So first, and in the context, he places the limit on the number of people. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three people. Second, he declares there should be order, and in each in turn, not at the same time. If you've been in extreme Pentecostal circles, you've got chaos. Third, in 27, he demands there be an interpretation, one interpret, so as to have the body receive the edification through the understanding. They speak it in whatever language they are natives of, Spanish, English, German, whatever, so that people can understand and be edified. If you don't understand, you're not edified. You go, huh? Look at 28. The condition for speaking out in the church is very clear now. First, but if there is no interpreter, the implication being another person. So, in other words, God distributes gifts severally as He wills. The personal knowledge of one present to interpret having the gifts would not be difficult. In those days, they were house churches, they weren't large congregations. People would know what gifts they had, right? The church was small. They would know this information. But even if they didn't. If that was God who allowed a person to speak in tongues. Then you trust God is going to give the interpretation. So you wait. And see how God's going to do it through whom. Right? And when it comes forth you judge. Is it up to God? Or is it over to man? Right? If it truly is of God then even if one does not know of one in the congregation, if it is God, he is not the author of confusion, and he will give the interpretation to someone. Absolutely. Secondly, notice in 28, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. So if I speak forth, and I believe God would have me to stand up and speak in tongues, as we're waiting upon the Lord, then the, if nobody speaks in, for the interpretation, then the responsibility falls back on me. And if nobody speaks, no big deal. We say, well, it wasn't the Lord, let's move on. And we're ratified, right? Everybody understands. If someone speaks for us, and someone speaks in tongues, and they speak prophecy, then I would say that is not the interpretation. The interpretation goes back up to God. Let's wait upon the Lord still. See if it's God. So you're directing, you're controlling. You understand? You're giving sense to the people. This is personal responsibility. Then to God, that if it is the Holy Spirit of God, God may give the interpretation to them as he said before in verse 13. He would. A caution here is important. Though the context is when the church is gathered, it does not mean that tongues or prophecy are to be spoken while the pastor is teaching. As I said earlier, bringing about confusion, and often this is the case in those type of circles. Some of you have attended, as I have, some of these churches, and as the pastor is teaching, all of a sudden, somebody blurts out a prophecy or a tongue or whatever. And it's not biblical. So, the same principle is, in turn, it must be followed. God is the God of order, not confusion. So, this is the gift of interpretation. Okay? And how you judge it. And how you exercise it. Thirdly, now, we come to the gift of prophecy. And having the foundation of tongues and the interpretation, now it's easy to distinguish and understand clearly what prophecy is. Let me give you the definition. Again, it is found there in 1 Corinthians 12.10. The definition of prophecy is as follows. New Testament prophecy is a supernatural utterance proclaimed to man by man by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for edification, exhortation, and comfort. And this is found in 1 Corinthians 14.3. You can find it right there. 14.3. Those are the three things. The one who prophesies speaks to man in one of three ways. In edification, to build up and strengthen, verse 3. In exhortation, to encourage. In comfort, to bring assurance. In contrast, the one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. And the one prophesying edifies the church, verse 4. Is it clear there? Okay? What's the difference? One is understood. The other one is not. You see? It's simple. Now, the Apostle Paul places a premium on prophecy by pointing out that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. In verse 5, we read that before, right? Now, the word more, in verse 5, identifies the greater value to the church. He's not greater in importance, in other words, the person speaking as an individual. But greater in benefit to the body. Prophecy is greater. Because you have understanding. You understand? (laughs) He gives the exception. When the one who speaks in tongues can interpret. Then the church can receive edification. Why? Because the tongue is interpreted. In a normal language. Is that clear? Now. Prophecy in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is uh, much misunderstood. The primary function of prophecy is to speak forth the word of God. The prophet was the mouthpiece of God. Most prophets were called and they weren't of the priestly family because the kings and the priesthood and the people had apostatized. And the prophet will call them back to God in repentance. He was the mouthpiece of God to call people back. Okay? The secondary function of a prophet or prophecy is to foretell future events as the eyes and the mind of God reveal them. And God only knows the future. So the primary function is speaking forth the word of God. When I teach you, as I'm teaching right now, I am exercising the gift of teaching and prophecy. I'm speaking forth the word of God. That's one aspect of prophecy, speaking forth God's word. Okay? Too often individuals hear someone prophesy over them. And they step out without waiting upon God to confirm if it's God. And so they go out to bring it to pass. And when the thing doesn't come to pass, they become bitter and resentful and disappointed with God. And this happens in a lot of Pentecostal circles. Somebody will stand and say, God told me that you're going to go to be a missionary to Africa. And the people go, oh, and they sell everything, go. And they don't laugh, it happens. Or someone says, You know, God told me you're going to marry me, and people do it. Because they live their life by emotion and by feelings. And they call that faith. No, that's foolishness. If the prophecy is true and God calls you out, then you write that down and you wait upon God. If it's truly God, He's already spoken to you about it. It's confirmation. God's not going to tell somebody else to tell you you'd be a missionary. He'll tell you first, and then He'll have somebody confirm. That he's called you. But it's never news to you. If God tells, if God says you're going to marry somebody, he'll tell you first. Then they'll confirm it to you. It won't be news. Some guy comes to you and says, young lady, God told me you're going to marry me. Tell to go take a hike. You don't know how many people's lives are destroyed through the gifts of the Spirit of God. When God hasn't spoken anything at all. And people manipulate people. People use people. In the church. And they know it. In May 28th of 1977. Saturday. At 12.05 a.m. God spoke to me. Out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2. Pilgrims of sojourners. He writes to the Jews that are dispersed abroad. At that time I was doing a Bible study. At Highland Park. For about 10 months. And I thought God perhaps was calling me out. I was on staff at West Covina. But as I waited upon the Lord. I realized that it wasn't for me to leave West Covina. But then in March of 1980. God started the study at Alhambra. That started with three people. And this is the result of that study. God built a church. All of a sudden, God brought to my mind and my heart the prophecy I wrote down. When I believe God speaks to me, I write it down, I date it, I put the time. And I say, Lord, if that's you, I'm not God, so you're going to have to bring it to pass. God doesn't speak to you to bring it to pass. God speaks to you that he's going to bring it to pass. Okay? He doesn't need your help. Do you know how many times we get in trouble? Abraham and Sarah thought that God needed help. They got Hagar. My Lord, what a mess they made. Therefore, prophecy encompasses preaching and teaching as one speaks forth the word of God. That's one aspect of it. The other one is edification, exhortation, and comfort, right? That's the other aspect of it we 're told to earnestly desire the best gifts in first corinthians twelve thirty one the best gifts are those that edify, which are those all the gifts edify the body except for one speaking in tongues unless it is interpreted 1 corinthians fourteen one and twelve simple now the instructions about Prophecy in the church gathering is given to us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 29. First, he limits again the number of people. Let two or three prophets speak. So there's a limitation on number. Second, and others judge. The order is to be judged by one or by two, not at the same time. The content To make sure that it's not contradicting, adding, or taking away from the scriptures is common sense. God is not going to get up and give a prophecy that contradicts his doctrine. Agreed? The function that it does is to edify, exhort, and comfort. And the direction, in verse 3, you speak to man. Not to God in prophecy, right? And you speak in a language that's understood, right? Simple. Thirdly, in verse 30. But if anyone is revealed to another who sits by, let them first keep silent. In other words, so each one can speak in order and not confusion, right? The reason is that all may prophesy in turn. That all may learn and all may be encouraged, verse 31 of chapter 14 says. The basic reason that Paul can demand order without fear of quenching or grieving the spirit is due to two simple principles that never change. Don't miss them. First, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, verse 32 of chapter 14. The Holy Spirit never forces anyone to do anything against their will or out of control. The second is that God of the Bible is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints in 1 Corinthians 14.33. In other words, this is the manual for every believer in every church that claims to be a Christian. You don't have two different instructions. It's consistent. The lack of order and confusion is man's doing by the lack of knowledge Of the scriptures and carnality. Wrong teaching. Allowing himself to be led by his or her emotions. The desire for attention. To be thought of as spiritual. And to impress people. As ever present in man. Always. Take note. Paul declared. In all the churches of the saints. God. Is. Is. Consistent in all the churches because they are all part of his body, and he is the head of every one of them. We are not to despise prophesying first Thessalonians 520, but to test all things to what to the scriptures. The gifts are till the return of Jesus Christ. People say they have ceased in the apostolic age. Well, Paul opens this epistle to 1 Corinthians chapter one verse 7, thanking God that the Corinthians had the gifts until the return until the coming of Jesus Christ. That's only one verse, but that's enough if that's all I had. Paul declared that when he, Christ, returns, then that which is perf- in part shall be done away. In 1 Corinthians 13, 9-10. Let me read that. thirteen nine through 10 He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Paul is not refuting the prohibiting the certain gifts, but correcting their abuse and misuse, exhorting the proper use of these three gifts. That which is perfect is come, speaks about Jesus Christ, not the whole of the canon. Those who reject the scriptures for today, the gifts, they say that that which is perfect speaks about the word of God. No, the perfect to come is Jesus Christ. Okay, no Greek scholar would agree with that. Many of the same individuals will teach that Paul is in fact teaching that agape love is substituting the gifts of the spirit. Because in chapter 12, you have the gifts. In chapter 13, you have agape love. And in chapter 14, you have the problematic gifts. Tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. And these people teach that Paul is teaching that agape love is substituting the gifts. Where do you get that? When he finishes chapter 14, forbid not to speak with the tongues. It's absolutely a lie. The important thing to remember is that the three chapters are a unit and must be studied and interpreted as a unit, not in isolation of each other out of context. The first verse of chapter 12 to 14 Clearly feuds such a position by the fact that Paul opens up with the section by declaring that the Corinthians were not to be ignorant about the gifts and to pursue love. The greater or the or, or the greater of faith and hope, love being the purest motive for operating the gifts. So my motive to operate the gifts is love for you, love for the Lord. So I don't want to abuse them or misuse them. The verse also teaches Paul expected the gifts to be operative by the command in verse 1 and 2 of 14 and 39 and 40. How can you give this letter to the Corinthians knowing that there's not going to be any gifts 2,000 years down the road? (laughs) God's not the author of confusion. Now, the scriptural evidence in Acts rejects the denial of the gifts for only the first apostolic church. At Pentecost, as you know, they heard them speak the wonderful works of God in their own dialects, Acts 2.11. At the house of Cornelius, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God at, at his house. That was 12 years after Pentecost in Acts 10.46, 12 years. At Ephesus, they spoke with tongues and prophesied 24 years after Pentecost, Acts 19, 6. So much for the first apostolic, only Pentecost. Agabus prophesied of famine in Acts 11, 27 through 28. The Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry which I have called them. They didn't call themselves. God didn't say, you go fulfill it. I've called you, go out. Agabus prophesied of Paul's imprisonment in Acts 21, 10 through 11. Philip had four daughtered virgins that prophesied Acts 21, 8 through 9. How could they cease? When the book of Acts is the only book of history that we have regarding the church, it's still being written today. The church is still present. So from every angle, it's a lie. It's a misunderstanding. It's an ignorance that the gifts are not for today. And so many individuals intellectualize the gifts and they just simply say the gift of teaching is just the ability to study and to communicate. And the gift of wisdom is just having the wisdom and all this. No, no, no. It's a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. The gift of teaching, they're all supernatural gifts, not talents or abilities to be learned. You must distinguish them. So this is the gift of prophecy. Now I hope that it clears up some confusion and clarity in your mind as to these three chapters about these three problematic gifts that were being abused and misused in a very carnal way and still continue to be so today. The gifts of inspiration or utterance, the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues, and the gift of prophecy. Father, thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. We pray, Lord, you would continue to instruct us and teach us. Thank you for your gifts. We pray that you would disperse them sovereignly as you will, Lord. That they would be used to your glory, to your honor, for the edification of the body. That we would never attempt to use them to uplift ourselves or to proudfully display ourselves. But that we would operate them in love and humility, Lord. For the benefit of your body. As you're praying. If you're here tonight. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's possible. Then the message to you is that. Before you can even consider any gifts. And to be used of God. You have to repent of your sins. That's based on the fact. That you would believe that Jesus Christ. Is God who became man who died in your place for your sin, and the wrath of God was poured upon the Son, but really belongs upon you. And that he paid the price for your sins, he literally died and rose again, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And if you believe that, which is the good news of the gospel, and you call upon him and repent from your sin by grace through faith, he will forgive you and make you his son or his daughter. That is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. That must first happen before you can consider any of the gifts at all. If you feel that you qualify, that you agree with what I just said, then you can pray for God to forgive you. It's called repentance. This is your prayer to him and he will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord. For all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my savior and lord. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.